everyone, welcome back to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. Thank you all for tuning in for another episode. Jenna, these are the fun episodes. We're being joined by a couple different guests. We always really enjoy these when we get kind of a party going on. In this the is a really room. unique one too because we have somebody from the Cincinnati Zoo and somebody from a different zoo and they somehow work together from across the country. So um, tell us who we have. Mark. Yes, very cool dynamic here. We're being joined by Anthony Stenger. Anthony's a full-time zookeeper at the Fresno Chaffee Zoo, and on the side, he is a board chairperson for the Texas Lobo Coalition, which we're going to be talking a lot about today. We're also being joined by Tara Lay, who Tara works here with us at the Cincinnati Zoo. She's a member of the North America team as a zookeeper, and she's also a member of the education committee for the Texas Lobo Coalition as well. So thank you guys so much for taking your time to join us and being here. We're really excited to have you on today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to talking to you guys today about everything wolves and about everything I do outside of the zoo world. Awesome. Yeah, thank you guys for having us. Super excited to talk about the work that we're doing that kind of is underground at the moment, but hopefully it'll make a big change in the future of Mexican wolves. Yes, I wanted to say, I had to look it up. I was wondering how the title Texas Lobo Coalition came about because I didn't know what Lobo was. So can you guys explain? I was going to say, I don't know if anybody knows what we're talking about yet today. So um, can you tell us where that came from? Yeah, so lobo is actually the Spanish word for wolf. But also a lot um, Mexican wolves are referred to as lobos very frequently, especially in the Southwest um, and especially like New Mexico and Arizona and even West Texas as well and even Mexico, too. So that's kind of how the name came about. We're kind of playing we're playing on words a little bit with our organization. Okay. So it's a little bit more of a regional term, I guess. It is, yeah. Okay. yeah. Great, so we'll be talking about wolves today, and that is how you two met, is a love for wolves, it sounds like. So we'll start with, we'll go with Tara first. Can you tell us how you became a zookeeper, or what you were up to that made you interested in zookeeping, or where you are today? Absolutely, so wolves have been my favorite animal since I was a child, and then in college, a friend of mine was a senior keeper at a local wildlife sanctuary out in Indiana, and an internship popped up, so I decided to take that, and then I just never left. <laughs> so I started as an intern working with wolves and other large North American carnivores, and eventually became a senior keeper there, until I was able to get my foot in the door at Cincinnati Zoo, where now I am working with our North American animals and our North America department. And that includes our Mexican wolves, who are a part of the SAFE program. And so they are one of the two recovery species that we currently have at Cincinnati Zoo. Which I think is so neat. So you work with the manatees in the North America um, department also. And so you work with two animals that do have the opportunity to be released back into the wild. Which is a question we get here at the zoo a yeah. lot. Like, oh, well, you know, for us, it's, oh, well, the hippos be released into the wild. Would Fiona survive in the wild? And mm -hmm. those sort of questions. And... You know, we try and mention to people that, for the most part, zoos are trying very hard to never bring animals in from the wild, except for very, very special situations like the manatees, and potentially put animals back into the wild, like the Mexican gray wolves. So we want to hear more about that, but I think that's a cool opportunity you have. Yeah, absolutely. So we have three boys currently at the Cincinnati Zoo. They all came from the Endangered Wolf Center. They're about five and a half years old. They were born in 2018 in the spring. We have Bruce, Shadow, and Wea. 
So our experience managing these wolves is a lot different than your typical zookeeper, mm -hmm. like what you may experience with the hippos. We have to have a very hands-off approach, so we don't do any type of operant conditioning, any type of training. We just try to keep them as wild as we can. These boys at any point in time could be pulled from our facility to be placed back into the wild, and that would depend on what the SAFE program requires and needs. We can touch more on SAFE, but just to mention what that stands for, it's saving animals from extinction, and a lot of these were formerly SSP programs, species survival plans. So we have a very hands-off management approach, and these guys try to get as much of a replicated natural diet as they could. We do have to do some supplemental feedings like a lot of zoo facilities do, but we keep them as wild as possible, which means they are restricted on certain enrichment they can have, and we just have to be very creative on things that they would find in their environment. That would be a, a tricky situation. Like you're trying to keep them really happy, but you also want to keep them wild so that they have the opportunity yes. to potentially reproduce in the wild one day or, or, you know, go back into the wild. So very unique um, experience that you have with them. Yeah, it really leads to us having to be very creative. So with our enrichment, we're trying to build more of experiences for them. So they may feel like they're hunting or foraging for items. You know, we'll set up, maybe they have some rabbit, before, rabbit fur before they get their prey item, which may be a bunny. So we're kind of setting up those experiences so they can feel like they're really participating in things they would in the wild. And we have to be a little stricter on that type of enrichment as well. I think that has to be a little bit challenging, too, from a zookeeper perspective, too, right? Because part of the reason we love these jobs so much is because the, the relationships that we can build mm -hmm. with the animals. And obviously, you aren't able to get quite as close to the mm -hmm. wolves and the manatees yeah. as you might want to. But you know at the end of the day, it's for the greater good, right? It's so that this animal can be released into the wild. So mm -hmm. I can only imagine how rewarding it is for an animal that you take care of to be released, like we do with the manatees so frequently, like... It's got to be incredible, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And as you said, it's like we do have to change that thinking. So it's really hard because all of my other animals I can rich and train as normal. And as much as I would love more than anything to have a relationship with these boys, it's much bigger than my desire and mm -hmm. my want for a relationship with them because these three individuals will have a major impact on the future generations for Mexican wolves. So rewarding. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. We'll talk more. I definitely want to hear more about SAFE and how the boys will be... Um, involved in that. And then Anthony, so you grew up in Ohio, you work in California, and you started a nonprofit in Texas <laughs> oh, yeah. that works with animals in Texas, which is very cool. So tell us how you got there. Yeah. So I, again, as I am a Cincinnati native, so I grew up always going to the zoo and I've always wanted to be a zookeeper since I was little. Um, started actually as a volunteer here at the zoo nice. many, many years ago, um, and actually had the uh, opportunity to even work with um, the mountain lions here at the zoo, nice. too, which I think it's their birthday today, no way, too, really? so uh, that was a little bit of a nice coincidence, but um, yeah, I started um, volunteering at a very young age, because again, I always wanted, knew I wanted to be a zookeeper, um, but then I went to college at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio with a degree in zoology. And while I was in school, I did internships at many different places. I uh, did an internship at Nashville Zoo, uh, working with carnivores there, also at Wildlife Safari in Oregon, working with cheetahs and other carnivores there too. Um, but also during my time, I actually did an internship at a wildlife sanctuary in Indiana, the same one that Tara worked at. And that's actually how Tara and I met. And that's actually where I fell in love with actually 
wildlife conservation for carnivores, but also for native species too, and wolves specifically. Um, So after graduating school and doing internships and whatnot, um, I got offered a job at the El Paso Zoo in Texas, where I actually took care of a lot of different species um, that are found in Texas, uh, and one of them were Mexican gray wolves. So I actually had the unique opportunity to actually see and take care of Mexican gray wolves firsthand. Are there very many zoos with them? There is quite a few of them um, because it's one of the only managed populations in zoos right now. Um, The only other population or wolf species that's managed is red wolves. And that's also through SAFE program as well, um, which I actually currently do take care of. Red Wolves at my current zoo, so we'd have to um, do similar, if not the same, requirements as Mexican wolves, um, because they can be released or could be taken from the facility at any given time. And Red Wolves are critically endangered as well. They are, yes. And they're more in the eastern U.S., whereas the Mexican greys are in the southwestern U.S., right? That is correct, yes. So you were a zookeeper at El Paso, and... How do you start a nonprofit? I don't even... Did that happen before or after you moved? Yeah, great question. So I actually uh, co-founded the organization when I was still working at the El Paso Zoo. Um, There was a colleague there that was just as interested as I am, and they helped jumpstart the program or the organization, um, and then moved on to Fresno Chaffee zoo to work with carnivores and primates okay um but still working with the organization because i am very passionate about this organization okay so i just continued on okay so you're kind of doing it remotely and yep. tell everyone what texas Lobo coalition does what is its goal what is it trying to our goal is to one day hopefully restore mexican wolves back in their historic range of west texas um one of the last Mexican wolves were actually found in near Owl, no, sorry, I believe near Big Bend National Park before um, U.S. before they became extinct and they were taken from the wild to restart the population. There's even a video out there of one of the last ones being caught near wow. that Big Bend National Park. Um, so, again, we really wanted to help restore, but we're working with like private landowners and the state. Well, I'm trying to change their laws and whatnot as well. Okay, that was going to be my next question. Yep. What are you doing to restore the land? And so it's a lot of people work, right? It sure is. Um, because again, unfortunately, Texas is very, uh, had negative views towards wolves. And again, there are a lot of like ranch owners and uh, farmers out there. And of course, they think it's competition with wolves, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, they're afraid that the wolves will take out their livestock and whatnot, hence the reason why there are currently no wolves in West Texas versus in Arizona and New Mexico. Okay. It sounds like your job is more of like a PR campaign to restore the wolves' image then, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, that's... I'm doing a lot of raising awareness right now for the species and hopefully one day uh, change that perspective of the wolf. Sure. So we did have Maggie Dwyer on our podcast, which hopefully a lot of our listeners have listened to, who worked with Mexican gray wolves through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. But would you guys give us just a quick rundown on kind of like the plight, the historical plight that the Mexican gray wolves have gone through and 
uh, kind of the adversity that they're going through right now still? Yeah, absolutely. So what the things that Mexican wolves have faced are truly what all wolves across North America and in many other countries are still facing is this persecution and this idea that they are these bloodthirsty killers out to take your livestock, harm your living, and maybe even take your pets, but that's not true. However, that persisted for many, many generations within North America. So unfortunately, Mexican wolves definitely were a victim of that. So in the 1970s, these guys were officially declared extinct in the wild. Mm. What facilities like Cincinnati Zoo and Fresno are working towards is trying to accommodate this program and we're building a captive population. So for 18 years, facilities took in Mexican wolves from the wild, bred them, and made sure to accommodate genetic diversity so that eventually in 1998, these wolves could be re-released. And so the first release was done in Arizona with 11 individuals, and they were the ones who kick-started the whole new wild population of Mexican wolves within the southwestern uh, United States. It's still mind-boggling to me that it started with that small of a number, right? 11 individuals for a whole population is crazy. And then do you guys know, like, the exact, like, whereabouts of their current range? Like, they're currently in New Mexico and Arizona? Is yes, that, right? okay. that is correct. They are over both states. Um, and if I remember correctly, there are about 260 individuals in Which that range right now. It's great, but... So little also yeah, at the yeah, same exactly. time. What was their historical range? I didn't even realize they were in Texas, to be honest. Yeah, so they, um, historically, they lived all over, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, but even southern Colorado, um, and into west Texas okay. as well. Um, all the way up to, like, Al, no, all the way up to Big Bend National Park. Okay. Um, but that's the furthest east that they went, because again, there were red wolves historically on the east the other side of texas so okay and i just wanted to clarify because we hear a few different things is there a difference or can you explain mexican wolves versus mexican gray wolves and are they the same is it subspecies they are the same okay just what it's the more of a personal preference okay um i know in our organization we like to say mexican wolves okay but technically mexican wolves are a subspecies of gray wolf Oh, okay. They are the smallest subspecies as well. Okay, that makes sense. And I think it's really interesting and amazing to point out that thanks to zoos, we were able to have something to establish this new wild Mm -hmm. population with because they were, as you said, extinct in the wild. So um, that is something that we can be thankful that zoos have been doing and working on still to this day. So um, you mentioned that we have... Mexican gray wolves here and they're a part of the SAFE program. What has the zoo's participation been? What does that mean that they're in the SAFE program and do you know much about the past with our wolves here? Yeah, so we have at one point at Cincinnati Zoo we were successful with a litter of puppies but since then we've kind of tailored off on wanting to improve our facility before any breeding that we've done. So to make sure that our boys are contributing to wild populations and captive populations because these captive populations are also responsible for producing litters that will, some of those puppies will go back into the wild through a cross fostering Mm -hmm. program. So what we're doing to make sure our boys get their genetics out there as it's just three brothers is they 
are participants in a semen collection at least once a year. So there's a few individuals that will travel through several states. They stop at Columbus Zoo also, for example, since they have Mexican greys, and they will do semen collections on all of the wolves that they possibly can to store those in a genetic bank for future use. Okay, great. Yeah, and we've heard all about, we've had some ladies from Crew on who have told us all about how the semen collection works, how it can be utilized to spread uh, kind of offspring to the future. We've had, you know, examples where animals have passed away and still had babies long after they've passed away. So we know that that's a great program for the wolves, for sure. So I this is off um, topic, but we wanted to mention something about you, you as a zookeeper at Fresno Chaffee Zoo. You also work with lions, correct? I do. Can you tell our listeners about one of the lions that you work with? Yes. I actually work with a male lion. His name is Chisolo. We call him Chewy for short a lot of times. And he is actually John the lion's um, little brother. Yes. And <laughs> he looks dead on John, too. Just John's <laughs> a lot older, but... Every time I see him, it's like, yep, you look like your brother. You are definitely related to each other. They're both very beautiful, handsome lions, and I wanted to mention that because we have a lot of John the Lion fans here. But you said you work with primates also, and you're working with red wolves. What are the differences that you're noticing between red wolves and Mexican wolves? Uh, red wolves are a lot smaller, for sure, believe it or not. They're maybe a third smaller than the Mexican wolves that I've worked with previously, um, their coat is also a little bit shorter, Okay. too. Um, not by much, but it is. it definitely looks shorter. Um, but they also have that Rufus red coloration that they get where they get their name, Red Wolves, mm. from. And are they critically endangered because of the same issues? Yes. Okay. So for the Mexican Wolves and the Texas Lobo Coalition, you are going out and talking to ranchers. You're like, what are you each of you doing as your main part of being on the board of this uh, nonprofit? So right now as a, the board chairperson, I'm doing a little bit of everything. Um, but I'm also on the education committee with Tara currently to just create more awareness for Mexican Wolves, but also our organization in general, to sh show people what we're actually trying to accomplish in the future. And so is that looking like Zoom calls? Are you guys sending out emails? Are you going to Texas and talking to people in person? Eventually we will be doing that, okay. but we are mainly doing like the Zoom meetings and doing remote stuff, remote work okay. right now. Um, I'm constantly texting Tara right now for, you know, for updating our social media pages and whatnot, and then also connecting with other board members as well um, to make sure our projects and tasks are being done. Okay. And a lot of them are like little simple ones right now. They're not really focused towards conservation, but there are some that are bigger, more broader conservation goals. Like again, talking to the ranch owners or, um, or Talking to the state of Texas and talking to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services about their, you know, you know laws and whatnot and okay. regulations. Um, you know, talking to the national parks in Texas, like Guadalupe Mountains National mm -hmm. Park and even Big Bend and seeing what their stance on is about having wolves in their park if they are protected or whatnot. Um, what actually happens if a wolf does randomly show up on that land, that kind of stuff. Okay. So we're just getting more background information right now so we're ready for when if that does happen or if our organization is able to actually restore mexican wolves in texas okay that was something i definitely wanted to ask 
Obviously, you're trying to restore this kind of native population that once inhabited West Texas. Is your strategy more to just let the wild population that's currently in Arizona and New Mexico to let them kind of naturally move into West Texas? Or do you actually want to go into like reintroduction efforts and bring wolves out to West Texas? That is one strategy we have talked about before. And there actually has been a wolf. I forget the name of the wolf in particular, but it made, uh, new, the, it made the media and news and whatnot where it got really close to the New Mexico-Mexico, or sorry, the New Mexico-Texas border gotcha. state line where it almost ventured into Guadalupe Mountains National Park, which okay. is actually on the border of, it's in Texas, but it's on the brick right around the border of the state line of New Mexico and Texas. So we were really watching close eyes on that yeah. to see if it was going to end up in Texas or not. And I guess the wolf didn't make it over to Texas. No, unfortunately not, but that's okay. <laughs> um, we do have to let wildlife migrate naturally, sure. too. So, um, and actually, believe it or not, just recently in the state of California, they actually discovered a pack of just standard or regular gray wolves that actually ventured from northern california to the central valley near fresno undetected wow because the closest pack to the one in that that was recently found in the central valley is 200 miles north do they have any ideas of what brought them there not to my knowledge at the moment That's so interesting. <laughs> but the fact that they migrate undetected gives us high hopes that yeah. maybe that could also happen with mexican wolves too. and that there's enough uninterrupted land or however they made it that yeah. far is is important, of course. Yeah, I've read a few articles about the California new wolf pack, and they were saying that a lot of California has a very suitable habitat for gray wolves. So maybe they just seek it out, and they're heading there on their own. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, it's interesting that you have to... There are so few that we are keeping track of all of the different packs, right? You know, like, yeah. it's, you would hope that you wouldn't have any idea how many different packs there are if there was one traveling mm -hmm. 200 miles or not, but there are very few left. Mm -hmm. um, Terry, you mentioned the SAFE program and how our boys are contributing, but if you know enough, can you explain more about what the SAFE program in general, like, mm -hmm. for different species if you want, or just mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about because it's sort of new in AZA zoos, right? And any information you know about SAFE and you're able to explain it much better than I am, that would be great. <laughs> Absolutely. So SAFE is Saving Animals from Extinction, formerly the SSP, so Species Survival Plans. A lot of animals are transferring from those SSP plans to those SAFE plans. Mexican wolves were one of the first to be transferred, so we were actually featured on the AZA page as the headshot for a while, which was very <laughs> exciting. But this program is a bi-national recovery plan. So as Anthony had mentioned when we were discussing range of Mexican wolves, they are in Mexico and they face a lot of different conflicts and obstacles than we do here. But without a supportive recovery program in Mexico, it will be pretty much impossible for us to keep our Mexican wolves supported as well. Mm -hmm. So with that bi-national recovery program, we have AZA and even some non-AZA facilities who are working on managing Mexican wolves and they will, like us, will participate in those semen collections if they have all boys or if they are adequate to breed, they will breed. And then the cross-fostering program is probably one of the bigger players of the SAFE program. And I'm always jealous of whoever gets this, <laughs> gets this as their profession because hiking into the woods with wolf puppies on your back just sounds like a great day in the office. But the way they cross-foster is it's, it's very 
timed how they do it. So wolves only give birth once a year and that's in the spring. They have a 63 day gestation period. So when that female wolf in captivity gives birth, they will remove two pups from her litter, two or three, give or take, and then they will transfer them, hopefully, into a wild den where a mother just gave birth as well. And they, that time is really important. They only have about a two-week window, so that way the pups are close enough in size that mom isn't confused. A lot of times people ask, how do both of the moms handle it? And yes, the mother that is at the zoo facility may be a little bit curious about where her babies are, but their maternal instinct is so strong that she just takes care of those that she has. And it's not uncommon for mothers to lose pups a lot in that first year. They can have a very high mortality mm -hmm. rate due to viruses, competition, not enough food, etc. But whoever then out of those puppies was chosen to go in the wild, they are backpacked in until they find a den where they have marked. And whoever, as humans, is taking those puppies in, we do not have deodorant on, no smelly goods, anything that would be something that would alert that mother wolf that that pup is different. So they go in and then they will find that den and they put the new puppies in with the wild puppies and they kind of mix them around and make sure that they're all a little stirred up so it's hard to tell who's who. But they'll also do a lot of blood work exams and checkups on the wild pups just to get some baseline data. And then mom wolf comes back and just realizes she's got more babies and doesn't usually ask questions because <laughs> that maternal instinct just takes over and she takes care of all of them. So cross fostering has been a really successful program that they're doing and it allows us to really mix in that diversity and those genetics between captive facilities and wild populations without having to do anything that's too invasive or removing adults from the wild. Yeah, and it's yeah. awesome that as a member of SAFE you're able to kind of contribute to that, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And to kind of talk a little bit more about that cross-fostering program, I've actually been very fortunate to actually see it firsthand oh, at the El Paso awesome. Zoo. Um, I saw one of the litters that was born at El Paso Zoo recently uh, be part of that cross-fostering program. They did have a second litter the following year, but I had already left to go to Fresno Chaffee Zoo. But I did see the process of having, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services come in and keep other keepers come in, getting loading the puppies up in a backpack and actually going on to that hike to place them in packs both in New Mexico and in Arizona. That's got to be exhilarating. Yeah. I can't yeah. even imagine. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, didn't, I wasn't the one who did the hiking, but it's right. just like to actually see the process was yeah. really cool to actually see it. Are they collaring them or following them? Is it someone's job to watch them and see how they do in the wild or how successful? I, I thought I read something on your one of your blogs or your website that said, and I don't remember exactly what part it was, but almost only 20% of the wolves survive past a, a year. Yes. Is that a part of the cross-fostering program? Is it wolves in general? Just wolves in general. Okay. Um, when pups are placed into wild packs, U.S. Fish and Wildlife will take over and monitor that particular pack. Um, and sometimes they give the zoos updates on the packs, but not all the time. Okay, so you're not, do you know how successful the pups that were? I know with the first litter, um, they got to be adults, if I remember correctly. That's awesome. So, but it was two years ago when that happened. So okay. uh, we stopped receiving updates after six months after okay. the pups were cross-fostered. Gotcha. That makes sense. And obviously... Like you mentioned, Tara, like not only is it such a great way to just increase the actual numbers, the raw numbers, because they're so small in the wild, but it's also such a good way to 
increased diversity. Genetic diversity for a population that small is so important and so key, especially if there's not movement of the population and they are kind of cut off in some of their areas. So that's such a cool program. And you mentioned that we're not taking them from the wild to bring into zoos for that diversity. So how are we keeping genetic diversity in zoos? Um, is it just from the semen collection and taking it to you know another facility and impregnating the female there? How often are they, or are they just collecting semen for now just to collect it? Or are they actually doing AI? Yeah, so as far as I know, we've just been doing the semen collection to just kind of have that genetic diversity. But I'm gonna give a shout out to Cincinnati Zoo's very own Kim Scott, who is the safe coordinator for Mexican wolves. So she gets to kind of oversee that whole program. And so when we're kind of concerned about keeping that genetic diversity in captive populations, then we consider animal transfers. So that semen collection gives us a bank and some backup. However, then if animals are needed to breed at different facilities, we just kind of rotate them out like you would for your SSP plans as well and any other safe programs just to keep giving those individuals an opportunity to breed. And that is all just dependent on how many need to go out, how many facilities mm -hmm. can breed, if these animals are still at breeding ages, anything like that can play a factor. So it's hard to kind of give a real rough estimate on how many we're having in these captive facilities that are a part of this program. but it is ever-changing as needs are developing. So right now we do not have a female with our boys, but is there hope for the future that we could have um, the boys here be a part of making puppies? Yeah, so I think it's on the list that we would love to get our boys' genetics out there. As I said, they have participated in a semen collection, but they have not been fathers themselves. So it's really a hope that they can eventually, and our pack may grow as some facilities they may need a wolf that needs housed differently. They are pack units, but like you get in trouble with your family or you don't get along with your friends. Sometimes if these wolves are not seen eye to eye, they may be transferred into new packs. So our doors are open for a new pack member. It's just not been solidified who that will be. Man, my fingers are crossed for uh, wolf pups here. So I think the boys would love a girl, so yes. we're gonna all hope for a young little lady. Yes. I think the three brothers would be shocked to see a lady walk in there. <laughs> How? What are their personalities like? I know you don't really get to build that relationship for their success in the future, um, but can you tell us a little bit about them, or do they have favorite foods, or do they have any differences you can tell? Yes, absolutely. So we always joke that Saturday is for the boys because that's when they get their rabbits, which is their favorite prey item of all. <laughs> but they do have their each individual personality. So we have Bruce, he's probably our most laid back guy. If you visit Cincinnati Zoo, he's the one who has the most red coloration. And his bottom lip is a little droopy from an injury he had as a puppy, but now it's just a really cute trait. <laughs> but Bruce tends to be the most laid back anytime we have to do any management with them. He's kind of like, just let's just get through it. He doesn't really give us a lot of trouble, and he just really likes to dig holes and takes naps in them. <laughs> Shadow is kind of our little more anxious boy, but he just likes to patrol his land quite a bit. And he can be a little feisty sometimes, but he's just a little shy and nervous. Weya is definitely the one who I would say, they're all wolves, but he's the most wolf. <laughs> Weya, he's the smallest of the pack, but he's definitely the bravest, and he is, I would say, the strongest and the most willing to not take any crap from anyone. <laughs> so. so would you consider him the alpha, or is there not consider that with three Yeah, boys. so it's a little tough with them because when they originally came from Endangered Wolf Center to us, there's been some conflict saying that Bruce or Shadow were alpha, but 
It's hard to tell because Bruce and Shadow equally eat as much as one another. They're only a two pound difference where Wei is definitely lower on the totem, which kind of blows my mind with how tricky and sneaky he can be, but I think he just respects his place in the line. So they don't have really a true alpha or a true dominance order just because most wolf packs are like a family unit and that alpha term is really meant to relate to the top breeding pair. Uh, alpha is kind of dying as a term because it, originally it was thought that people acquired alpha or packs acquired alphas through dominance or aggression and it's studies and researchers showing that it's more just mom and dad kind of with the rest of their offspring built that pack so since they're kind of an artificial pack they don't really have a dominance order but I would say way as lower on the totem okay good to know I'm glad you explained that for everyone and Anthony I don't know if you could tell us a little bit Tara mentioned that they aren't out there just trying to kill anything and everything. They aren't going after people's pets often. I'm sure there has been in the past where they are killing livestock, and I'm sure that has been an issue. But overall, it's not what they're always going to hunt. What is something they would naturally eat in the wild? What A, a little bit about their natural history. Yeah, so Mexican wolves are actually, again, they are the smallest subspecies of gray wolf. Um, so they're actually going to be hunting much smaller game, such as, like, deer, small mammals, even some birds as well. Again, in a pack, they might be, af be able to go after much larger prey items like elk and whatnot that's found in Arizona and New Mexico. But, yeah, in terms of their natural history, um, they, again, they're going to be focusing more on that smaller game more so than anything else. Packs are also much smaller, too, compared to great... Gray wolves in general, like the ones that you found up north. Okay, so how big are their packs usually? Um, anywhere from five to ten okay. individuals well, in, a, than in a mature pack, yeah, in a formulated pack. And again, it's mainly going to be consistent of mom and dad and offspring. Okay. And do the males typically go off um, once they leave their mom and dad and find females, or do the females... Um... Sometimes. Okay. So that's really the only way for um, those offspring to really make a pack of their own is mm -hmm. it to venture out is it typically males though or is it, it could be both? either it's okay. both but sometimes again males and female pups that become adults may stay with their family okay. pack as well for a long time they just don't breed and contribute okay to actually increasing the number of the pack right members okay. they're there helping out with mom and dad and their younger siblings and whatnot do you have any ideas on like statistics or how often the wolves are actually hunting livestock or like harming a rancher's, um, you know, living. Yeah. It's a, if I remember correctly, it's less than 1%. Okay. So mm -hmm. is that something that you've been able to explain to ranchers that, or that U.S. Fish and Wildlife are, and are we seeing any more like, um, like love for the wolves or acceptance I should say from the yeah. ranchers are they as is the education reaching them I guess it's not quite reaching them yet okay. I mean we're still professing as much as possible mm -hmm. but um there is still that risk of potentially wolves taking out livestock of course but again it's less than one percent and even there's other studies that show that even with other predators as well not just with mexican wolves okay yeah and i think that's one of the unfortunate things about any species that has like a poor reputation like that right that it's undeservedly so but they do have a poor reputation and kind of reversing that is going to be probably the biggest hurdle because you need the community buy-in right if you want this to be successful so exactly i can imagine how difficult it's going to be of a task for you <laughs> it will be yeah. but again i'm very passionate about it good um 
So I've always, again, as mentioned before, I've always had a passion for wildlife conservation, but also for carnivores, since I work with carnivores. But the fact that I'm also able to contribute to a carnivore native to North America is even mm-hmm. a bigger pack. You know, the fact that I'm contributing even more. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I think we always kind of look far off into Africa or other countries, and there's like a lot of conservation that needs to happen here in North America. Yep. So I think that's mm-hmm. pretty neat. Yeah, to touch on the livestock, uh, Wildlife Services of the USD actually just within August released new set of standards to help determine predation by wolves on livestock. So this will really help us make sure that we are not removing individuals that were not to blame for these predations of livestock. So those new Standards will include requiring more detailed evidence, such as determining that the livestock was alive during the encounter with the wolf. Some ranchers who have incredibly large livestock herds, it's really tough for them to monitor each of those individuals. So that's why a lot of times organizations like us may encourage non-lethal management methods, such as range riding to keep track of your livestock so you can accommodate and know where they are instead of just blaming the wolves. So the Wildlife Services of USDA is going to require evidence that says that livestock animal was alive before the encounter, and they will also be examining for other evidence of determining health factors such as subcutaneous hemorrhaging. So that will help us prevent any wolves getting the blame for things that they were not at fault for. Okay, see, I love that. Yeah, I love hearing, like, the... um the actual like action steps that you can see are making a difference and will be implemented and that sort of thing because it's so hard to explain what conservationists are doing a lot of the time and like how you're making a difference and more often than not we're hearing that it's speaking to people Absolutely. <laughs> and you know like I don't know if camera traps or anything are a mm-hmm. part of this could ranchers put more cameras up or could um, like Texas Lobo Coalition, could that be a project where you raise funds and, and put up camera traps for them and pay for it? Like, are there things like that going on that you know of, even if it's not through you guys? Um, not that I'm aware of, but that is definitely something we could do in the future. Um, right now, a lot of our organizations mainly people oriented, mm-hmm. um, lawmaking and yep. talking to, or, and also just the logistics of running an organization yeah. too. Since we're a very newer organization too. We started actually creating this organization back in 2020 okay, when so COVID it's happened. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't become a true nonprofit till 2021. Okay. Um, and I was the vice chairperson for throughout that until very recently, till the um, former board chairperson resigned okay. and I had to step in. Gotcha. From, because as vice chair, I had to fill in whenever the um, actual board chairperson was unable to do stuff. So I had more of an understanding of what the direction we were going. Uh, We actually just finished uh, our three-year strategic planning too recently. And a lot of it is people-based, but also just logistics of running an organization too. Yeah, that's what... I'm always so impressed when people start nonprofits. I'm like, I don't know where you begin with that. um, A passion. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Do you see in in other parts of the world with kind of like protecting livestock from predators, um, people use like guard dogs? Is that something that they do with wolves? Has there been any experience or success with any of that? Yeah, so there's been a lot of, with really just North America's carnivores in general, a lot of organizations are promoting this coexistence, this non-lethal management. And like you said, Mark, that does include guard dogs. A lot of times they include guard animals such as alpacas, llamas, and donkeys too because Mm. they make a lot of noise. They kick at things, <laughs> they scare things, and then there's even other like very small methods, like it's called flattery, where you just 
put red or colored flags around your your livestock fence and then the wolves are like what is this colorful thing blowing in the wind i don't know it i don't understand it Interesting. so they can use noisemakers they can set out these flags their guard dogs anything like that to just kind of deter it and then range riding as i had mentioned is one of those things that really beneficial because then the ranchers themselves are keeping an eye on their livestock mm -hmm. and they have a better understanding of what's going on if an animal is sick so then a wolf isn't getting blamed and then pulled from the wild unnecessarily it's very neat. There's so many different ways to help, and hopefully we will be helping here at the zoo by putting pups in the wild again here, um, I hope, in the future while I'm still working here. I'd love to see that. <laughs> Me too. I think the last I... time it happened was right before I started here, so I missed out just a little bit. And, yeah, hopefully you guys are coming up with all sorts of things and your organization takes off very soon. Um, do you have trivia for us today? I do not. No trivia? No okay, trivia you guys today. lucked out. I dropped Is, the ball. I dropped the ball. <laughs> right? Is there anything else you guys want to talk about that we missed as far as your jobs or Mexican wolves or anything like that? I will say I think I like to always kind of talk to people about this when I'm speaking about wolves. I think wolves are a great example of all that you can learn from nature. People struggle with their misconceptions of them because even as a child, you're used to the Red Riding Hood stories of the big bad wolf mm -hmm. and everything. However, wolves are family units and they really rely on one another. Everyone's familiar with the quote, the strength of a wolf is the strength of the pack and the strength of the pack is the strength of the wolf. But I think that's really true in the fact that these are family units and what they do is they protect one another and they value that social bond and those relationships and they are resilient and they're determined and these animals, they don't give up for their family or things that they need or that they care about. And so I think people need to step away from the concept that wolves are just killing just to kill because honestly, no, they're not. If a wolf has to go out and hunt, it's risking its life. Many wolves only live to be four to six years in the wild, and many of these necropsies of these wolves from the wild are showing that they are missing three to four canines. They have broken ribs or broken legs, femurs, things that have healed. And so these animals are not out as bloodthirsty killers. They are families fighting for their loved ones. And so I think we could take a look at wolves and learn a lot more about ourselves. That was beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really yes. was. Yes, they're just hunting to keep alive, like all predators yes. do. And you said it much more beautifully than <laughs> that. But that is what they're doing. Thank you. Did you have anything else you would like to add? or? Um, I do not, actually. That okay. kind of covers everything. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yes. I really appreciate it. Of course. So we always end with one more question. What can I do? Yeah, so you can definitely uh, follow our blog and also our social media platform, Texas Lobo Coalition. We currently just have a Facebook and a blog, okay. um, but hopefully we'll have more platforms in the future. Um, but that is just one way to stay in touch and get updates on what we're actually doing um, for the organization. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, follow Texas Lobo Coalition on Facebook. They have a blog where you'll find information about what they're doing and wolves in general and what's happening. And yeah, a lot of really good info on the website as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We just want to say we're really proud of you guys. Good job for, uh, following your passion and making a difference. And we hope it takes off very soon. I'm sure it was a tough start in 2020, but we encourage all the listeners to check it out. And again, thank you guys for being here. Thank yeah, you thank again. you so much. <laughs> yeah, I know. it's. I, I can't imagine working this full-time job and then after you get off work, starting this entire nonprofit. So, like, 
seriously, so much props to you, Anthony, Tara, all the work that you've put in and helping with it. Like, props. You guys should be proud of your work that you're doing, and thank you for everything you do, for sure. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having us, and really, just people who love wolves, you either really, really love them, or you really, really, really love them, so <laughs> that's why we don't mind it. <laughs> they are amazing creatures, so, well, thank you guys, and you. we'll uh, talk to you all later. Have a good day. Yep, until next time, go check out the Texas Lobo Coalition.